Well, thank you, Joseph. And it is an honor and a pleasure to be back with you. Um, you guys are an encouragement. You actually came back. You know, that's an encouragement. Although I noticed my wife's not here and my mother-in-law, oh, they're on Zoom, right, Margaret? Are they on Zoom? All right, I can't talk about them then. Okay. Uh, so, again, I, I just want to thank this class for the opportunity. I also want to thank you for many of you have asked about the jail ministry. I didn't give you an update uh, last week, but I'll take a little minute to um, do that now. The jail ministry is going great. Um, I'm not only going down there on um, Tuesday night and teaching the Bible, um, but also we have a class on Thursday afternoon. It's a Bible study class. It's taught by myself and two other guys. Uh, we team up on it. It's called Malachi Dads. It comes from Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, where he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children's hearts to the fathers. And uh, so it's it's been good, good. We have about five or six guys coming every week. And actually, one of the inmates led another inmate to Christ and invited them to Malachi, Dad. So he came for the first time on Thursday. And it's kind of, you know, these guys are kind of funny sometimes. And he said, uh, I led him to Christ, but I'm not sure I did it right. <laughs> he says, uh, Bob and Sam, will you talk to him and make sure you, he did it right? You know. I'm thinking, well, if he accepted Christ, you know, you did it right, you know. So anyway, but uh, it was good to see that they're reaching out. So um, again, this class has been very faithful to the jail ministry. I don't know how many of you know, but Al and Karen, uh, Al and Carol Shannon have been making me copies for the inmates, uh, 25 copies a week. I've been doing that for over a year. Uh, they wanted to... Uh, kind of move on and uh, so we're looking for somebody to pick up that ministry so uh, again I appreciate your prayers you know I've been doing this for 30 years um, I added up the time I spend in prison <laughs> I've served a three-year sentence I, I've heard one that we can identify with three sisters live together one was 96 years old, one was 94 years old, and one was 92 years old. And they were around the kitchen table one morning, and they're having their morning coffee. And the oldest sister says, um, I think I'm going to go upstairs and take a bath. So she goes upstairs and draws the water and goes to step in the tub. And then she yells down to her two younger sisters, hey, was I getting in the tub or getting out of the tub? So the middle sister, the 94-year-old, says, I'll go up and help her. She gets halfway up the steps and says, hey, was I going up the steps or coming down the steps? And, you know, and the 92-year-old, she rolls her eyes and says, please don't let me get like my two older sisters. And she raps on the wooden kitchen table for good luck. And then she yells up to her two older sisters, I'll be helping a minute to help you as soon as I answer the door. <laughs> well, hopefully it has nothing to do with uh, what we're going to study this week. <laughs> Last week we were in John chapter 21, and we saw where the Lord was going to provide for the apostles. And he, he demonstrated it by making them breakfast. They had been on a fishing trip all night. They were tired and hungry. He provided breakfast showing them that he was going to continue to be with them and he was going to provide for their ministries. And uh, this provision was going to be different. 
before he lived with them and he provided for them, but now it was going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw a glimpse of that when we, he commissions Peter, right? We, we looked at that where he says to Peter, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. But he, he says, you're not going to be able to do this in your humanism. You're not going to be able to do this in your human strength or your human wisdom. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them a command, actually twice, follow me. The Greek word there is alkylotheo, to follow. I don't know if anybody heard it, but our pastor on Insight for Living, he did a message. I, I heard it. I think it was aired in September. He said, there are true followers of Jesus, and then there are fans of Jesus. You know, fans, we get the name from fanatics, right? We know it from the entertainment industry or from sports. You know, the NFL, the National Football League head coaches, they have a saying, if you listen to the fans, soon you'll be sitting with them. You know, you'll, you'll lose your job. But there, we, Jesus had fans. These were people that have a divided heart, right? There, there's something in there, something that is more important than following Jesus. Oh, they may say he's a good teacher and he's a good prophet and he has good principles to live by. And they may even say he's the savior. He's the son of God. And they may even say that they're a Christian. You know, I don't know. I just learned just a couple of weeks ago, but the word Christian is only used in the Bible three times. The word disciple, a follower, is used 369 times in the Bible. So today we're, we're going to look in the Gospels and we're going to pick out some fans of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go back to our main character from last week, Peter. And we're going to look at 1 Peter because by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter gets what it means to be a follower of Christ, a true follower of Christ. So we're going to start, if you'll turn in your Bibles, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury, to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So uh, we have three fans of Jesus. Now, uh, Matthew gives us some detail on this first one, because if you look at Matthew 8, verse 18, they're, they're, this road that they're on, they're actually traveling from Capernaum, which you know, most believe is now Peter's home or was Peter's home. And they're traveling along a road to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke says that someone, but Matthew tells us 
this someone was a scribe, according to Matthew 8, 19, a scribe. Now, scribes were experts in the Mosaic law. They were experts in the rabbinic law. Uh, they interpreted for the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but they were also like attorneys. They would draw up legal documents for the common Jew. They would draw up, you know, marriage certificates, divorce certificates, uh, bill of sales, mortgages. They made a good living. They were used to a soft living. Now, they were generally hostile to our Lord, but they were used to a very good living. But this scribe, actually, Matthew tells us he calls him teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. This scribe wants to follow the Lord. Now, it might have been, if we look at Matthew's account, that this scribe saw these miracles he was doing. If you look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is coming off the Sermon on the Mount, and he comes and he heals a leper. And then in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, he gets a centurion, meets a centurion whose servant is close to death. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, just say the word. I'm a, I'm a military guy. Just give you the order. He'll be healed. And Jesus says, go, and it shall be done for you as you believed. And he heals him just by saying the word. And then he goes to Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law, probably despite Peter's objection, but he, you know, he heals his mother-in-law. And then later, later he brings, later in that night, they bring the demon possessed and they bring the, the ill and he casts out demons and he, he heals the, the sick. And this is all in one day, all in one day. And, and this scribe is going, whoa, this guy is going to be popular. This guy's going to be super. I mean, they're going to be willing to give money. I'll be able to draw up legal documents. This is, this is just super. This guy is going to be popular. And the apostles are thinking, hey, we've got a scribe that wants to follow us. This is one of the Jewish religious leaders, right? I mean, what a convert, what a catch we're going to have here. Man, you know, when we have a confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders, we can show them, hey, there's one of you. They're fo he's following us. Now, Jesus sees through everybody's enthusiasm here. Right? Jesus was used to rejection. He knew his ministry. I mean, he had moments of popularity, but he knew his ministry wasn't going to end that way. I mean, when he went to his hometown in Nazareth, right, and they asked him to read the scriptures in the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1, and he, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a messianic prophecy. We know this guy's father, and we know his brothers and sisters. What do they do? They lead him to a cliff. They're going to throw him off a cliff. You know, or when he cast out the legion of demons in Jersenes, and they asked for permission to go into the pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff and drown themselves, the people of that country come out and say, hey, you need to leave. Uh, I mean, this is too bizarre for us. You're messing with our livelihood, killing our herds of pigs. You need to get out of here. 
When, he, when you look at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 57, he's actually set his mind to go to Jerusalem, and they're going through Samaria, and they go to a village in Samaria, and they seek lodging there, and they refuse Jesus. And the sons of thunder, John and James, they say, hey, let us call down fire. We'll destroy this village. And Jesus goes, okay, guys, take it easy. The son of man came not to destroy man's life, but to save him. Jesus knew that his ministry wasn't going to end in popularity. As a matter of fact, he'll, he'll end up hanging from a cross with just a handful of his followers there. So he says to this guy, listen, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just, you know, I don't have a place to lodge. I don't have a place to call home. Uh, we're going from town to town. This is not going to end in popularity. This guy was a fan because he was looking for the popularity. He was looking for what he could get out of it. And then you have another fan in verse 59 he said to another, follow me, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, this guy is actually called by Jesus. Jesus is saying, follow me. Right? And he says, well, well, permit me first to bury my father. I mean, that seems to be a reasonable request. I mean, is Jesus being a little harsh here? I mean, we look at Genesis, we see Isaac and Ishmael burying, uh, burying Abraham in Genesis 25.9. We see Jacob and Esau burying Isaac in Genesis 35.29. We see Jacob requesting his sons to bring his bones to Canaan to be buried in Genesis 49.29 and 50.13. We see it in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Most experts believe this man's father is not dead. It's not dead. If his father was dead, he wouldn't be following Jesus on some road between Capernaum and the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. He would be home either in mourning or already making burial arrangements. What he's really saying is to Jesus, let me get my inheritance. Let me get my money. Let me get what is owed to me, right? And then he says, hey, we won't have to worry where we're going to lay our heads. I'll be able to afford lodging. We'll be like the birds and, and we'll be like the foxes. We'll have a place. See, this guy was a fan because he was interested in getting what was owed to him, his inheritance, right? I mean, Jesus uses this proverb. He says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That's not a, uh, a Christian proverb, but it was a proverb at that time. And when Jesus is saying, he's not saying there's anything wrong with going to funerals or burials. But what he's saying is, I'm calling you to call. I'm calling you to follow me and preach the kingdom of God. That takes precedent over everything. That's your number one priority. He's saying, let the dead bury the dead. He's saying, let the worldly people take care of the earthly matters of burying people. You preach the kingdom of God everywhere you go. See, this guy was a fan because he wanted his money. And then the third guy comes up in verse 69. Another one also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. 
And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this guy doesn't, he says, I'm not even worried about my inheritance. I'll just follow you. Let me go, you know, say goodbye to the people at home. That, I mean, that seems okay, right? Actually, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 20, Elijah allows Elisha to go back and kiss his mother and father. So this guy's just asking to go home. But again, Jesus sees through this that this guy has strong family ties, too strong. And what Jesus is thinking, this guy goes home, I'll never see him again. He's thinking that even if he comes with me, right, he's going to be always worried about his family. He's always going to be, well, how are they doing? He, he, he may get homesick. He's not going to be fit for proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually uses a proverb. It's from the 8th century B.C. Greek philosopher Hyssop. And he only, only uses part of it. But it says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back can plow straight furrows. That the furrows in the ground are not going to be straight. If you're constantly looking over your shoulder, plowing, they're going to be crooked. And so what Jesus says, hey, if you're always looking over your shoulders, worrying about your family, worrying about how they're doing, being homesick, you're not fit for the kingdom. You're not fit to follow me. These were all fans of Jesus. There's no proof that any of these three ever followed the Lord. And they're not the only fans that we can find in the gospel, right? How about the young rich ruler? You look at Luke's account in Luke 18. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit the eternal life? Jesus says in Luke 18, 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. Do not steal. And he says, all these I've kept since my youth. Jesus says in verse 22 of Luke 18, one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have your treasure in heaven, and come follow me. It says in verse 23, when he became very sad because he was extremely rich. He was a fan because of his money, as his possessions, as of his wealth. How about the fans of the feeding of the 5,000, right? They, he feeds them with five barley loaves, two fish. They said, whoa, this guy's super, right? We got an easy life. We got an easy meal ticket here. This is great, right? John records in John chapter 6 that they came the next day for another free lunch. Jesus says, John chapter 6, verse 27, do not work for food that perishes but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then he goes on and says, I am the bread of life. Right? It's one of his seven great I am statements. And he goes in verse 54, John 6, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And these, these guys say, what is this guy talking about? Of course, he's referring to his crucifixion, but they don't know that. They're saying, what is he talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? This is repulsive. This was against the Mosaic law. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
See, these were fans. They wanted an easy life. They wanted the easy street that Jesus would take care of their needs. How about the fans of the triumphal entry? Right? They're all excited. You go to John chapter 12, verse 13, and they're all excited. They're laying their cloaks down. Uh, they're not, not even letting the donkey's feet touch the ground. They're waving palm branches. They're screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But some of these people five days later are screaming something else. Crucify him. Crucify him. Right. They see their king of Israel beaten and bloodied by the Roman soldiers. And they're going, oh, this guy can't be our king. Look at him. He's pitiful. Right? He can't be our king. When he's hanging from the cross, they're wagging their heads and said, if you're the son of God, come down from that cross. These fans, they wanted their they wanted their nation to be prominent. They wanted Israel to be set up the king of Israel. They weren't true followers. How about the biggest fan of all time? Judas Iscariot. The most pitiful figure of all history. He saw all the miracles. He heard all the messages. He followed the Lord maybe three, three and a half years. But when Jesus starts talking about dying, in Mark 9, verse 31, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over the hands of sinful men, and they will kill him. Judas goes, whoa, 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 time out. I didn't sign up for that. Right? He knew what the Roman policy was. The Romans killed the leader, and, and, and he went after all the disciples. That's why the apostles are so scared after the crucifixion. They think the Romans are going to come after them. And he says, oh, no, I didn't sign up for that. He, Jesus wasn't the Messiah he thought he was. I love what Dr. John Walver used to say. He was the former chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, long been with the Lord. But he used to say about Judas Iscariot that he used to believe that if he was truly the Messiah, they'd never kill him. And if he's not, I'm 30 pieces of silver ahead. No. So Judas was a fan because Jesus didn't turn out to be the Messiah that he wanted him to be. See, fans of Jesus, and this is not an exhaustive list. You could go through the gospel and make a, a bunch of more. But fans have a divided heart, right? They, they want their popularity. They want wealth. They want an easy life. They want their nation to be prominent. They want power and authority. They want to rule and reign. And, you know, they think that Jesus will heal their diseases and fix their marriage and solve their financial condition. You know, I love what Jonathan Murphy said on Christmas Eve in his message. He says, these people are not antagonistic. They kind of admire Jesus, but they say you can't take this Jesus stuff too far. Don't take it too serious. They're kind of like the church of Laodicea. They're kind of lukewarm. In Revelation 3.16, Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth. Now, we could easily go through the gospel and pick out true followers of Christ, right? We could have John the Baptist. We could have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, we could have Mary Magdalene. There's many. But we're going to go back to Peter because Peter was our main character from last week. And as I mentioned, Peter changes 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, he changes. He changes from being somebody that's self-absorbed, impulsive, prideful, you know, uh, non-loving in a lot of ways to someone who becomes a loving, compassionate servant of the Church of Christ for three decades. And ultimately, we talked about last week, he's martyred for his faith. But he gets it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, we're going to look at a number of passages in Peter. I may have you flip around a lot. I apologize for that. But if you can go to 1 Peter, and we're going to pick up some characteristics of a true follower of Christ. The first characteristic of a true follower of Christ is he knows salvation. He knows salvation. Look at first Peter first. He knows salvation because he knows the cost of his salvation. Look at first Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19 saying, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Right? It was costly. God died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He shed his blood for us. I mean, we hear it so much, it becomes kind of ho-hum. Yeah, I know that. You know, I love what Charles Wesley writes, and how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And his hymn, and can it be? Yeah, I don't know how many hockey fans there are here. I know Rome Van Dyke's a hockey fan. He came from Canada. He's a big hockey But in the National Hockey League, when you win the championship, you get the Stanley Cup, Lord Stanley Cup. It sits about this high. You know what they do for every champion? They engrave the team name and the date, but they then engrave every member of the championship team's name on that cup. They've been given the cup since 1893. How would you have liked if God took the cross of Calvary and engraved all our names on it, all believers' names on it, right? And they preserved it. And you could now go and see it in the Holy Lands. How would it be to find your name and like find Bob Camp? I'd be way at the bottom down where the hole, hole is. Bob Campanella, and here you are. Your name's on this blood-stained cross. Jesus' blood. God's blood. I think a true follower knows salvation. He knows the cost. But he also knows the value. Flip over to 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 4, and he says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. See, a true follower knows salvation. He knows the value. Matter of fact, in verse 7, he says, Your faith is more precious than gold. He knows the value. It's something that we can't mess up. We can't screw it up. We can screw up a lot of things, right? We can mess up a lot of things. My inmates, they love when I present them that they can't mess up salvation, you know, because they've messed up so many things in their life. 
You know, their friends don't want, they're avoiding them. Their family doesn't want to have anything to do with them. If they were married, they're probably getting divorced or divorced. If they're single, their girlfriend's avoiding them. Uh, I mean, they've messed up so much. They've lost their job. They've messed up so much, but I show them that salvation is something they can't screw up. And they're encouraged by that. Jim Elliott, the uh, martyred missionary of the Anca Indians in Ecuador, he says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That we cannot lose our salvation. That's the value that we have. A true follower knows the cost, knows the value, but he also knows the importance. 1 Peter 3.15, he writes, Always be ready to make a defense to any, any, anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in with you with gentleness and reverence. That we're willing to share the gospel. And Peter writes, gentleness and reverence. This is Peter. You remember Peter in the New Testament? I, I don't ever see him being gentle or showing reverence to other people. I mean, I think maybe to the Lord a couple times, but not to other people. This is Peter. You know, we should be willing to share the gospel. We're, we're like a homeless person who finds housing and food, free housing and food. We need to go back to the other homeless people and tell them. That's what a true follower of Jesus does. He knows salvation. He knows the cost. He knows the value. He knows the importance of sharing. But a true follower also is willing to deny himself. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he says, if anyone comes, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. That we sacrifice ourselves. We sacrifice our selfishness, my me, myself, and I syndrome. Where does Mark get his gospel? He gets it from Peter, right? John Mark gets his gospel from Peter. Matthew picks this up in Matthew 10, verse 38. And he who does not pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, if you're not willing to sacrifice self, you're not worthy of me. First Peter he picks this up. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter. He doesn't call it denial of self. He calls it humility. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with, with humility. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. That a true follower denies self in humility. He humbles himself. We're not so great. I mean, fans look out for themselves. Fans don't know salvation. They look out for themselves. A true fan also serves God by serving others. First Peter 4.10, as each one have received a special gift, Employ it serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by strength, which God supplies. He's saying that, hey, we have gotten a spiritual gift. We got a spiritual gift and we're to employ it 
serving one another. True followers serves. He serves God by serving others. And we need to serve one another, particularly in the body of Christ, particularly in church. You know, we live with a big misconception. People put their hand on the door handle of the church and they say, what can I get out of this church? That's completely unscriptural, completely wrong. You're supposed to put your handle on the door handle of this church and you're supposed to say, what can I put in this church that will build up the body, that will edify our Lord, that we would be mature? True followers know salvation. They know the cost. They know the value. They know the importance. True followers deny themselves in humility. True followers serve God by serving others, particularly in the body of Christ. But true followers also live differently. They live differently. If you're still in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 14 and 15. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not conform to the former lust which was yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior. Don't miss that word, all. All your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That last part comes from Leviticus 19.2, but we're called to live a different life. As true followers, we live a different life. Uh, that's our goal, to be like our Father, to imitate Him, to be holy. Now, we're never going to get there in this lifetime, but that's our pursuit. That's our goal. Peter also writes in 1 Peter 3.18, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil and insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We're called to be, to get along. We're, we're supposed to love people, uh, harmonious, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Uh, we're, not we're not given insult for insult. That's what the world does, right? Hurt people like to hurt others. That's not true followers. That's the world. True followers live differently. Fans like to live like the world, but we as true followers live differently. We live differently, and this is something we're going to need to know, that we're willing to suffer for doing what is right. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Gets that last part from Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. But do not fear their intimidation. We need to be prepared to suffer for what we is right, what we know is right. I mean, Peter is writing to persecuted believers. I don't know if you know the story of, of Nero, but Nero is in power now. And Nero was a, he was a, he loved to build things. And he, he built out Rome. And so he sets fire to, to some buildings in Rome, hoping that they'll be destroyed and he can rebuild them. Well, the fire gets out of control. And what happens is Roman shrines, Roman temples, as sacred places to the Roman citizens are burned up. And they're, they're in an uproar. 
And Nero needs an escape goat. And he blames the Christians. He says the Christians set fire to him. And that persecution starts in Rome, but it spreads all through the Roman Empire, all the way to where the audience that Peter's writing to in southern Turkey in the Taurus Mountains, that they're being persecuted for doing what is right. He writes in 1 Peter 2.20, what credit is there if you, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. That finds favor with God. You know, we've had a good in this country as Christians. I love what Philip DeCourcy says. He says, you know, in the 1940s, the 1950s, we were the home team, right? We were the home team. I mean, if they weren't believers, they didn't, they didn't hate our values. I mean, if they were fans, they just, uh, they accepted our values as being good and moral. And it was, you know, we were the home team. People, we are no longer the home team. We're in the hostile team's territory now. They don't like our values. They won't stomach our values. They detest our values. We need to be prepared to suffer. I mean, we need to pray for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. What kind of country are they going to grow up in? I don't, think, I don't think you and I are going to recognize this country in 25 years. Well, we won't be around, so that makes it easy. But, you know, but uh, I, I don't think we recognize this country in a short 15 years. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, only the third time that it's used in the Bible, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God. A true follower lives differently. He better be prepared to suffer for doing what is right. A true follower also loves. If you're still in 1 Peter, go to chapter 1, verse 22. Peter writes, since you have an obedience to the truth, Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. And then he goes on in 1 Peter 4, 8. He says, above all, love one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Guess what? The word that Peter is using for love in this letter is agapao. The noun form is agape. The same word that he will, wasn't willing to commit to Jesus to in John chapter 21. But now by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is not only agape in Jesus, he is agape in other believers. And he's telling you and I that we need to agape other believers. You know, let's face it. Not everybody is likable. There's a lot of jerks in this world. I'm, I'm telling you that. You know, but we have a responsibility to love them, right? Loving the unlovable. Right? We need to know that they're made in the image of God just like we are. We need to know Jesus died for them just as much as he died for us. We need to love them with an agape love. Treat them with respect and compassion. And when he says love covers a multitude of sins, he's not telling us to wink at sin. But he's saying most of our sins as believers are just oopses. They're mistakes, right? He says, don't, you, nobody made you the sin police. 
I mean, yeah, if a sin is devastating and destructive and habitual in your brother's life, you need to address it. But most sins, you just love them. Just love them. True followers live differently. They love others. True followers live differently. They have godly marriages. Now I'm really going to get myself in trouble. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. True followers live differently. They have godly marriages. Let me read a couple verses. First, we'll go to the wives. Really get in trouble. In the same way, your wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. And then turn over to verse 6, or verse 5. Go up to verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Huh? Guys, when was the last time your wife called you Lord? Hmm? Even if we dream that she calls us Lord, we better wake up and apologize. Huh? But he says in verse 1, wives, you either be submissive. Ladies, do you know how many times he talks about being submissive and being subject to your own husband? Five times in the New Testament. Five times. And this guy's not even being obedient. He's disobedient. But he's saying, like, when Abraham was disobedient and said about Sarah, she's my sister, when they were in Egypt and when they were with King Abimelech, Right? What to do? God protected her. And he, 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 what Peter's saying here, we have godly marriages because you be submissive, even if he's being disobedient, and God will protect you. God will protect you. And when he, he says, as Lord, that's how much respect you should have. He's calling the ladies to be submissive. And he's not saying you're inferior. God is a God of order. He sets the order at our church. He sets the order in society. He sets the order in the workplace. He sets the order in our family. He's saying, you be submissive and you respect them. Now, guys, uh, we got a higher calling. We got a higher calling. But look at verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as someone weaker since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of your life, so your prayers will not be hindered. He's saying, guys, you need to love your wives. I mean, you go to Ephesians chapter 5, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. We need to love them unconditionally. When he says someone weaker, he, he's talking about, he's not talking spiritually, he's talking physically, but you need to honor her. You're to take that wife and you're to put her, and I'm talking to myself here because i got a ways to go. You need to put that wife on a pedestal. You need to honor her. You need to love her unconditionally. So your prayers are not hindered. And I'll tell you, if you do that, you love her unconditionally, you put her on a pedestal, she'll want to submit and respect you. True followers live differently. They have godly marriages. I love the story that David Jeremiah, Pastor David Jeremiah Wright said, and he doesn't have identify this actor, but 
David Jeremiah says that there was an actor who was known for his love scenes in the movies. And he was on a late night TV show. And the host asked him, what does it make to be a great lover? What does it make to be a great lover? The man's response, the actor's response, surprised the TV host and the audience. Because what he said says a great lover is one who satisfies his marital partner for all the days of their life. A great lover is not one who goes from sexual partner to sexual partner. He said, even a dog can do that. And we as believers have to have godly marriages. We live differently by having godly marriages. Then we live differently. We submit to authority. 1 Peter 2.13 says, submit yourselves to the Lord, to every human institution, whether to the king as a, uh, one of authority or as to the governor as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the, pr- and the praise of those who do right. We to submit to the people in power. Yeah, we can do what we can to get godly people elected, but hey, once they're in office, we need to submit to them. It's hard today. It's hard. We got a lot of pagans in office. Okay, we got one that's running our country, right? I mean, uh, and, and the sad thing is he would probably call himself a Christian. I mean, Lisa and I have been to his church or where he goes when he's on vacation. It's hard. We need to submit to authority. We live differently because, one, we better be, we better be ready to suffer for what is right. Two, we got to love each other. Three, we've got to have godly marriages. Four, we've got to submit to authority. You know, there's, oh, there's one other way that we true followers follow Jesus. Peter learned this in John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, Lord, where are you going that I cannot come now, but I will follow you later? Jesus says in a few verses in John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself, and that where I am, you may be also. True followers will follow Jesus one last time into the kingdom, into eternity. See, there are many fans of Jesus. They have a divided heart. They want, you know, their wealth is more important, their easy life, their... You know, they want to be prominent or they want to be powerful or, or, you know, they they punt Jesus after he doesn't solve their issues. He doesn't heal them. He doesn't solve their marriage issues, doesn't help them financially. They're, they're fans. They're fans. They're fickle. They might admire Jesus, but they're not true followers. True followers... No salvation. They know the price, the cost, the value, the importance. They deny themselves in humility. True followers are willing to serve, particularly in the body of Christ. True followers are willing to live differently, suffer for doing what is right, loving others, 
having godly marriages, submitting to authority, and someday we'll follow our Lord into eternity. You know, we have to be powered by the Holy Spirit to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. But if we do, what a witness we will be in a lost and dying world that's getting even worse and worse and worse. Maybe if we are good followers of Jesus Christ, some of those fans will become followers. That should be our prayer, right? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you give us the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow that Holy Spirit to fill each one of us, that we would be a true follower. We'd have laser focus on you, Lord. We follow you, whatever the cost, wherever you take us, that we would be just submissive to your will. Father, we, we, we lift up Connie and their family and the loss of David. We just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them. And it's so difficult to lose a, uh, a son at such an early age. We pray for the needs of this class, Lord, that you provide a teacher for them. And Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that uh, we can be together. And hopefully we're building each other up and bringing you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Great message. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.